submitted. We'll hear argument next to number 91-453, David H. Lucas versus the South Carolina Coastal Council. Now we get to it. Mr. Lewis. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. We are here because Mr. Lucas's land has been taken without just compensation being paid. The guiding principle in a case like this seems to rest on a determination when justice and fairness require that the economic injuries caused by public action should be borne by the many rather than the few. or as Justice Holmes said, when has a regulation gone too far? Our position is simple. When Mr. Lucas was denied all economically viable uses of his land, these basic principles demand that Mr. Lucas be paid just compensation for that taking. Mr. Lewis, is it perfectly clear from the opinion of the majority in the Supreme Court of South Carolina that they accepted the hypothesis that he was denied all economically viable use of his land? Yes, sir. So you feel it was completely uh, worthless? Yes, sir. Would you be willing to give it to me? I don't own it, but if, if with the taxes that are owed on it, I would be willing to give it to you. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> on, on the subject of concessions, uh, do you or did you concede uh, that the uh, that discouraging construction, and I'm, I'm referring, by the way, to the findings set out on page 16 of the red brief, uh, that discouraging the construction uh, uh, near the Beach Dune area is necessary to, present, to prevent a great public harm? Is no, sir, we did not concede that. We conceded that the regulation was a regulation that substantially advanced legitimate state interests. That's all we did. We did not challenge the regulation on the first prong of the uh, Tiburon or Agins test. We just said that we were not going to challenge that, that we were going to say, and as we did prove, that all economically viable uses of the land were gone. Does that always require, in your view, does, does that always require, in your view, uh, the payment of compensation if all economically viable use of the land is gone? Or is that uh, not applicable if there's a nuisance? I, I think it is always applicable, and I don't think that... So oh, even if this were a nuisance, uh, com compensation would be required if uh, the restriction on the land took away all of its economic viability? Yes, sir. My question would then become is when you look at the uses that were available before and after, if the only use was something was so obnoxious and so bad as to be able to meet whatever definition you want to as a Lucas, it wouldn't be very worth very much money. So therefore, when you apply the before and after value uh, or the before and after use, I think that takes care of that extreme case that I can't imagine that you've just mentioned. 
I guess the reason we can't imagine it when we haven't had a case on it is because of the definition of nuisance would be so expansive. Yes, sir. It's, nuisance is everything. It's different to everybody. Yes, sir. Is land different from other property in that regard? Yes, sir. You have said in the uh, Tiburon case, and I think it's very different. In the Tiburon case, you're denies an owner economically viable use of the land. You used the word land well, in that case. Ha happened to be land. Yes, I mean, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. But, I but, think... I mean, if it had been a cow, we would have said a cow, I assume. <laughs> yes, that, that doesn't seem to be very remarkable. That doesn't show that land is distinctive. Suppose, uh, suppose uh, uh, a state decides that it wants to uh, prohibit the sale of alcoholic beverages and it, it enacts a statute to that effect, and somebody has a, a factory that, that is useless for anything else except manufacturing beer. Well, I think, first of all... Totally yeah. useless. Would, would there be recovery? No, sir. Because that's a building and not land. That is, the building and the land go together as a unit. That's the case in uh, Mugler. And uh, that case, I think that you look, in that case, they haven't denied all economic uses of it. And to go back to your question on real versus per personal property, there is a great distinction. Real property throughout our jurisprudence has been found to be unique. You can have a uh, um, specific form performance for real property. There's also a big difference when you're dealing with real property and personal property between what's uh, entitlement and what's a fundamental right. It's a fundamental right to own property, to live on property. How you go out and what you can sell and how you can do that, that's an entitlement. It's not a fundamental right to own personal property. Yes, sir, it's a fundamental right to own it. It's not that's a fundamental right to go out and sell it if it's a, something's wrong with it or if it's diseased or something like that. That's not a fundamental right. No, but what's your authority for the proposition that the ownership of property is a fundamental right? I think if you go back to the uh, uh, fact of the Fifth Amendment, when they say that you can't take property without paying just compensation. That's a right to own and use property. It's a right not to be deprived of property without being paid compensation. Yes, sir. But th that's a much more careful statement of the proposition than the statement that ownership of property is a fundamental right. Do you have any further well, authority I'm sorry. for that? I I'm, I'm saying that the Right to use your property is the fundamental right. Ownership, well, well, not everybody well, owns property. Well, well why, why do you say it's a fundamental right? I say it's a fundamental right because to, if you have property and you go back and, and see that the uses of property are make, what makes up property. If you have property, you have the right to use it. You have said that in Tiburon, that when you take all the uses, it's gone. You have said in the cases that you look at the uses that are remaining afterwards. So property is just made up of uses. Well, the fact that property is just made up of uses does not necessarily prove that it's, uh, the ownership of it is a fundamental right. Uh, it seems to me you can do all you need for your case by simply adhering to the language of the just compensation. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You don't have to expound on whether property is a fundamental right. All you have to prove is that you were deprived of the use of property without being uh, by the government. Yes, sir. I agree. And I, I miss, that is what I meant to say. And if I didn't, I apologize. Mr. Lewis, could we uh, change direction here a moment? And may I inquire? There was a law passed subsequently that... Uh, by, under which South Carolina provided that 
uh, property owner affected by this earlier regulation could uh, apply for a permit to build, nonetheless, with certain conditions attached, right? That was two years between the first mm -hmm. enactment yes. and then this amendment in 1990. Yes. yes and uh, did the petitioner ever apply for such a permit? No, he did not. And don't, uh, to the extent that you are arguing there is a permanent uh, taking here, regulatory taking. Don't our cases indicate that uh, perhaps it's not ripe unless and until the application for a, an exemption has been sought? Not in this case. No. What happened in this case, you have two courts finding that the, all the viable uses are gone. You have the court, lower court finding that it is a permanent taking. You have a stipulation but, but did, of the... did that finding uh, determine the effect of this new exemption permit? What we have is, it's Question. interesting, in the stipulations in the court below, you have a stipulation in the court below, number 11, which says that the current law will not allow any structures to be on this piece of property. And then we have a stipulation, number 16, which says that any permit would be denied. At that same period of time, this act that later came law was in the process and in the legislature. So those two things right there show that there was at least a uh, contemplation when they said the current law requires says... Well, slow down a minute. At the time the stipulation was filed, the permit law had not yet been enacted? It had not been enacted, but it was in the process, Senate Act Number 391. It was in the process of being uh, debated. It was a hotly debated subject all over South Carolina because of the impact of this act on the beach property owners. The Supreme Court was asked to include the 1990 amendment in this, and they refused and found that the case went forward to be right. If you look at that particular amendment... Well, that doesn't settle the rightness for us. No, sir, it is just a consideration. I think that they looked at it... But do, they, you, do you still have a right to apply for the exemption? I do not think so. I think with the finding of the South Carolina Supreme Court that this, the building of a house or a home on this property is detrimental to the... Uh, health, safety, or welfare, that they are required under the amendment to turn my application down. There's nothing in this record to show that they would have a well, change of heart. Uh, you're asking us to uh, decide that, uh, uh, but we don't really know if you applied for an exemption, whether you'd get it or not. I think that under the, if you look at the findings of the Supreme Court and you look at the law and you compare the two, which is section yeah, 4839290D. What if you look at the dissenting opinions? Didn't they think you had a right to apply? The dissenting judges below? No, sir. The, I think the dissenting judges said that, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, they said that either pay them the money or give them a permit. Well, they said I would remand to, to the Coastal Council its decisions to whether to issue the permits in view of the recent 1990 amendments. Or to pay the money. Yeah, but certainly one of the options was to consider it under the 1990 amendment. That's I, the I cannot, I cannot, any words. I cannot uh, say that one of the options in this case, because there has been well, a You case. don't say that, but I'm saying is that the dissenting judges on the, on the Supreme Court of the state said that was an option. And they also said that it wasn't detrimental to the health, welfare, and, and safety. So once they take, they, they, you have to look at their um, 
opinion, dissenting opinion as a whole. They say it wasn't uh, detrimental to the health, safety, and welfare. So you take that particular stamp on Mr. Lucas' property away, and he sure could he could uh, apply. But the dissent uh, didn't carry the day on that particular finding of fact. Well, there's no doubt, is there, Mr. Lewis, that there was a period from 1988 until 1990 when there was no permit for which you could have applied for. And Absolutely. You simply, the, the, the situation described by the Supreme Court of South Carolina did obtain. Absolutely. There are two years where there was an absolutely nothing Mr. Lucas could do with this property whatsoever. Mr. Lewis, uh, we're throwing around the term uh, no economic viability of this property. Yes, Vi viable is a good medical term. It isn't a legal term. And, uh, but the, the lawyers have taken it over and the judges too. What, what do you mean by economic viability? What I'm sa saying by that, that this property is worth zero. Zero dollars. The before and after, the uses, the before and after value, before it was worth a million dollars and it was a nice home site, two high, nice home ha sites. Afterwards, it has no uh, uses and no value. So it's a matter of valuation. Well, valuation is, of course, one of the keys in it. It also goes to uses. The uses determine the value in all pieces of property. Mm -hmm. So I think when you go down and you take a piece of property from uh, uses down to no uses and from a million dollars down to zero, you have a taking under our Constitution, that's regardless hard, of what... hardly the medical definition of an old-time term of being viable. Mr. Lewis, can I ask you a factual question that perhaps isn't in the record? Is this property located right where that hurricane hit in uh, no, sir. Charleston? No, sir. This it, is on the Isle of Palms, is it? This is on the Isle of Palms, and, well, it is the Isle of the Hurricane. That whole island was vir virtually desolated by the hurricane. Most of the homes, believe it or not, on that island made it. What really caught most of it was when it came across Charleston, and it came on inland and all the way to Charlotte. But uh, those homes that were on the Isle of Palms at the time of Hugo, most of those made it. There was more damage to some of the condominium high-rise structures than it were to the low homes with reference Hugo. But it is just north of Charleston, and it did get uh, plenty of Hurricane Hugo, I, I, I can assure you of that. Council, suppose that uh, there's a residential subdivision uh, and a person owns uh, lots that are zoned for uh, residential improvement, but they're vacant lots and an earthquake fault is discovered. Uh, and the expert opinion is that it's very, very dangerous to build. And the county denies zoning permit for that reason. And assume also that all economic viability of the land is, is gone. Is that a taking? It, it, is, it is not a taking for the following reason. It was not the regulation that took the value of the land. It was the discovery of the fact that the land had no value in the first place. So when you take the before and after test, uh, the uses before and after, you find that it is the fact that it's on a fault and it's no good to build on anyway. Well, why, can't, why can't the state say here that the finding was that uh, uh, this coastal zone, uh, because of uh, new and detailed studies with reference to erosion, uh, it is, is now a very dangerous place to build. Dangerous for the owner, dangerous for the neighbors. Because if you look at, if you go out there and if you look at the, the land and you go out there and see it, you have a big house on the left, you have a big house, a four-story house in the middle, and a, on the other side you have a big house and you have houses all around it. 
I mean, the, the facts of this case don't support such a conclusion and doesn't well, well, that just a, That is just a factual matter we're arguing about. We, you, your, your client stipulated the fact that this uh, ordinance had, or that this regulation, had a valid public purpose. Yes, sir. We do. We indeed say and, that. And, and it seems to me that uh, there are instances in which all economic viability can be deprived uh, because of an urgent safety reason and that there's no taking. And, well, this and I don't think your answer has refuted that proposition. Well, what I'm saying in that case, if there's an urgent safety reason, the uh, urgency of that, whatever it is, if it's a fire coming down on you, if it's a fact that there's a, um, a bomb underneath of you, the uh, exigencies of that situation are what demands that. In this case, there's no such thing. Justice Toll took some findings in the legislature that said it was to protect uh, the beaches from erosion and, to, and to, for tourism and so forth, and she made a quantum leap and said that, therefore, we have said that it is a great public harm to build a house on this property. And that's not at all the case. But that, that wasn't challenged in this case. All you ch your whole theory is that if all economic viability is, the, is, is lost, that that's the end of the case. No, sir. What I'm saying is, is the findings that there was a great public harm was not a finding that ever came out until Justice Toll made that quantum leap in the South Carolina Supreme Court. That was never a finding of any other court. Well, it I assume made. the legislature can make a finding, can't it? They never said anything about it being a great public harm. All they said was that, and if you can look at the uh, factual uh, findings of the legislature, it, it talks about uh, a, the um, erosion. It talks about tourism. It talks about making the beaches nice and making them pretty. It has a whole bunch of nice statements that all legislation has for the reason they pass such an act. But to take that and to uh, say, okay, I'm going to jump from that and say that these findings make it a great public harm, I don't think you can do that. If you're going to do that, what happens is that we're going to have to, us lawyers out here, in every regulatory taking case, we're going to have to attack the statute because we're going to be in fear that some higher authority, a judge, is going to say, we didn't attack the statute as it substantially advances legitimate state interests, and because you didn't do that, hey, it's a nuisance and we can take your property. So you're going to turn every uh, regulatory taking case into an attack on the statute as to whether or not it can be interpreted as a nuisance or not. And I don't think that's the way it should be, and we, we have not conceded anything by saying that this is a laudable purpose to try to protect the beaches. We've not conceded that our land, to put a house on our land, a home on our land, is a nuisance. May I ask this on that question? The uh, South Carolina Supreme Court thought you'd conceded that. At least they said that in their opinion. Did you in your cert petition ask us to review the accuracy of that concession? We, we took the case on the assumption that you had made such a concession. Yeah. Now you're telling us you really didn't, and I'm not saying you did, obviously. We, but, but were we on notice that that was going to be one of the things we'd have to decide? Yes, sir. In our petition, we took the position that the mere labeling by the South Carolina Supreme Court that it was a great public harm was not something that could be used as a basis for denying just compensation. Surely we did that. That is an integral part of our whole case. Mr. Lewis, may I ask you two factual questions? <clears throat> I seem to recall that somewhere in the record there's an indication that at some point in the 
recallable past, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, your land was underwater at one point. Is that correct? There is something in the record, and I don't remember how long back, that there was a pond on one of our lots. If you ever go out to the ocean, you'll see, uh, you'll sit on one side and you have to walk around some water that's out there to get to the beach on the other side. There was that. That was there. And that has disappeared naturally in the meantime. Yes, sir. And this, is, this whole island has been accreting for some 1,500 years, and you'll find that under the methodology used, that they had to choose a, veg a vegetation line for purposes of setting the setback lines on this piece of property because of the fact that it's been accreting and that they could not use that uh, other formula with reference to the last 40 times the erosion rate. They could not use that on this property simply because it was accreting and had been accreting for some time. All right, let me ask you my second question. You, uh, uh, you spoke of the, the, what I think you, you described as the finding of the South Carolina Supreme Court that the development of the land would be detrimental to uh, public welfare, safety, health, and so on. Uh, and you said that finding came out of the blue. Was, was that finding possibly based uh, and based on and simply a kind of interpretation of this record evidence that at one point uh, some of your land at least was inundated, or in the alternative, was that so-called finding simply a statement in a shorthand kind of way that that's what the legislature had found and there was at least a reasonable uh, or non-reviewable basis for so finding? I, I think, first of all, if I use the word finding, I want to withdraw that. It's a labeling. It was no finding whatsoever. It was a mere labeling of what the legislature had found, as well, you I, I may have used that. You may not have. About the rest of my, my question, what it, whether it's a finding or a labeling, A, was it referring back to the period of inundation, and B, if it was not, uh, is it fair to read it as, a, as, in effect, a restatement of the findings of the legislature uh, with the, uh, the assumption that those findings were reasonable or at least non-reviewable? It is a shorthand for the legislature and a labeling of the legislature and has no basis, and then the court doesn't say so, that it has any basis in the record or the facts of the record. Uh, counsel, I see that, uh, I see that your, your opponent at one uh, point says the issue of temporary taking was preserved at trial by stipulation, and hence uh, that it too is not ripe. I don't believe the stipulation said that the argument on the temporary take is uh, reserved. In other words, there is no more facts for a temporary taking. If they say, let's, hey... Let's, let's, assume that, let's assume that we disagree with you, that, uh, that, <clears throat> that uh, your overall claim is not ripe because of your right to apply for, a, uh, for an exception, and that the only issue that's left then, as far as we're concerned, is the temporary taking issue. Uh, that, that issue hasn't been dealt with by any of the courts below, whether there was a temporary taking. Yes, it's, we say the temporary taking would be the same standard so that all of the facts, everything is in this record with reference to temporary take. The only difference is is the quantum of the damages that would be available to well, I, I don't know. I suppose somebody, uh, if you... Uh, if you were arguing for a temporary taking, uh, you'd have to, uh, there'd be issues about, well, when did you really intend to build? That's it. The, the, the trial court found in the record that he was going to build a house 
and that he was going to hold the other piece of property for investment. Well, I know he was going to build a house when? That plans are in the record that the house that he's going to build. I know plans are in the record, but you never did apply for a building permit, I guess. Was there evidence I expected to build tomorrow or next year or what? There was evidence that he was going to build the house that's in the record, and there's a stipulation that they wouldn't let him. Yes, but... We still, you still haven't answered my question. Was there evidence, <coughs> specific evidence as to when he was wanted to build? Was there specific was evidence as to the starting date? No, sir, because you can't have a starting date until you have a permit. And they well, specifically said say I, I couldn't have a I permit. I intended to build right away. I'm, oh, I think that is suppose, definitely uh, within the record that he tended to build right away. You were, were going to build two houses, one of them for speculation. No question. I was going to hold one piece for investment. Well, and... Uh, if you're building, a, if you're going to build a spec house, uh, you don't always just build right away. You, you uh, try to figure out what the market is. Oh, that is exactly right. But I don't. That has nothing to do with the, whether or not there's been a temporary take or not. Well, I think it does. Uh, it only goes to the quantum of the damages. Well, I don't know. I don't know whether there would be proof that you and that that you ever would have built during these two years. Oh, yes, sir. I think that's in the record already, as to at least one house. Mr. Lewis, do you, do, uh, the, the, um, the respondent's uh, brief contends that uh, the South Carolina Supreme Court understood you to be advancing a very narrow argument to wit that any use of the police power to, that takes away the total economic value of your land is a taking. No matter what nuisance or, not, or no nuisance, no matter what the basis of the use of the police power is. Is, is that a fair uh, characterization of your argument below? No, sir. My argument is that, and I think you look at the uh, order of Judge Patterson, and you'll find that what we said was that when we are denied under the Tiburon test, we denied an owner economically viable use of the land, we get paid for a taking. That's what we're saying. No matter, no matter what the reason for the statute was? Yes, sir. That is because... So your answer is yes, that is a fair characterization. Yes, sir. We gave up the substantially advanced legitimate state interests. If we said that, that, that the statute did that, and we think that there is no, uh, what they, they want, a per se rule. They want to say there is some uh, legitimate state interest type situation uh, as to, and that you can forget about what you do to the value and the uses, and you can take it. They're asking for the per se rule. No, you, you want the per se rule, you, you, and, and you argued it below. If it takes away all the economic value, it's a taking that has to be compensated. They're saying that's so sometimes, but not all the time. That it, if, if there's a nuisance, if it's, a, if it's a threatening the public safety, you can take it all away without paying. And you, you deny that. I deny that. You denied it below, and you continue to deny it here. That's right, because if I take the Tiburon test, I have to read out the, the word or to make that test work, because that's an or test in Tiburon, and it says substantially advanced legitimate state interest or denies an owner economically viable uses. We do, in our uh, reply brief, point out if, and we say that if, and that we don't agree that there, if you're going to go to some kind of exception, that it be something 
that is an imminent danger of such a magnitude to justify denial of just compensation, and only when such action purpose is to control that imminent danger. That's a fallback position. Absolutely. You don't think you should do it at all? Even. No, sir. Absolutely not. You always have to pay, even if it's to save, uh, save the city. Well, then, to save the city. Now, that, then you're going to get into a factual information as to what your before use was, your after you use was. To and pay. So Just pay. You don't have to inquire in any facts. Your position is, if it takes, at least with real estate, if it takes away the total value, right. you pay, no matter what the reason. If it had value before and you took right. it away, you pay. But, Mr. Lewis, you do have a fallback position, do you, that yes, if, we don't, yes, if we don't agree with that, yes, that and think there's a nuisance exception, that this doesn't fall within it? Is we, that it? we call it a public necessity exception, if there is such one, and that it has to be imminent danger of such a magnitude to justify denial of just compensation, and that the action's purpose is to control the imminent danger, not in this case, and that this case would not meet that test whatsoever. And I would re reserve the rest for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Lewis. Mr. Harness, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, South Carolina asks you to uphold the decision of our Supreme Court for what we believe to be two very compelling reasons. First is that the restrictions of the South Carolina Beachfront Management Act based upon a very real and considered truth. And that's building upon unstable land, unstable beaches. The fragile beach dune system creates great public risk of harm. Secondly, the petitioner never challenged that legislative determination, but instead claimed it was irrelevant to his takings claim. His theory of the case is based upon the extreme proposition that economic impact alone, without any other consideration, is the determinant of taking. The theory is wrong. There is no constitutional right to harm others. Secondly, the threat is well documented. Building on unstable and fragile beach dune system does create harm. Well, if you say there's no constitutional right to harm others and link it to your argument, this is what about Justice Holmes' opinion in Mayan against Pennsylvania Coal Company, where there was no question that the subsurface mining would very likely cause the subsidence of some, some residences, and yet the court said that the compensation had to be paid? I think what uh, Justice Holmes was looking at was the balance between the degree of harm. There was very little public harm in his way of thinking. It was a private harm that he was discussing. And in that instance, in that particular instance, the degree of diminution in value was very significant. I think in looking at the harm, what the court does is to look at the degree of the harm. Well, but don't you think then your proposition that there's no right to harm others in support of your idea of the nuisance exception is, is perhaps too broad? That sometimes there will be some actions of, of property owners that may cause some sort of harm to others, and yet perhaps they may not be totally proscribed without paying compensation. I would concede that. I think that the, this goes back to what has been termed the Mugler principle, that the community has, has, has authority to prevent serious public harm by denying uses without being required to pay compensation, but certainly it is, is a measure of the degree of harm that the state is, is seeking to prevent. Well, I, it seems to me we have, we have 
two extreme positions here. Mr. Lewis takes the position it doesn't matter how much harm you have to pay. And as I read the South Carolina Supreme Court, it seems to say uh, it doesn't matter how little harm you don't have to pay. Isn't that, isn't that a fair description of what the South Carolina Supreme Court said? I think what the Sa- no. Did, did they find that this was a, an enormous amount of harm, that it was something that rose to the level of a, of, 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 of a, a threat to life and limb or even a public nuisance? No, I think, if I might answer, they did two things. One is, is they first said that the petitioner never raised the issue, that all he raised was the unique argument that diminution in value alone equal to a taking. But secondly, I think that the, the legislature, legislative findings and facts that are laid out in the Act gave the court reason and sufficient reason to believe that there were great public harms. If you read the findings and purposes of that, clear letter directed is the highest type of police power activity. That is preventing threat to life and property. Did it say highest type of police power activity? I mean, they, they it doesn't say that. No, no, sir. It does not say that, but I think that that has been the position taken by the Solicitor General and by this court, that if there is a great threat to life and property, that certainly would fit within the commonly called nuisance exception. And in, in essence, the nuisance exception is a, it seems to me to be a shorthand way of, of saying the state has the permission or the authority to prevent great public harm without paying compensation, dependent upon that degree. What, what was the great threat to life or property that over the next 50 years uh, uh, some adjacent land might erode? Is that the kind of immediate no. threat that you think? Uh, well, I think that the threat is very real. First of all, the Act looked at the threat to life and property by building near the ocean. It is well recognized that uh, portions of homes, even homes themselves during times of great storm events, would be blown or washed into houses behind them. Secondly, that septic tanks and that sewer lines that, are, that lead to these houses and very near the ocean break asunder and that those contaminants are put into public waters. Thirdly, that water lines are broken water, and, and the water supply is contaminated. Um, and thirdly, or fourthly, you, and that's looking, enough to prevent all building entirely. Not not uh, not uh, necessary precautions. Just say you can't build. If I follow your question, I think that the answer is is that there is clear evidence that the closer you build to the ocean, and if you build upon the beach dune system, that you this is behind the dunes, isn't it? This is behind the dunes. That's what I understood at a good distance behind the dunes. Currently, the property is behind the dunes, but the evidence presented by the South Carolina Coastal Council is that 20 percent of the time in the last 40 years, the shoreline has been landward of the road behind him, and 50 percent of the time, this lot has either been on the active beach or underwater. Mm-hmm. It's certainly an unstable type of beach that typically the Act was seeking uh, to address the Apparently not unstable enough and not often enough to stop people from building houses all up and down the same street. People, before the passage of this act, built up to the highest uprush of the waves on our coast with no consideration at all for what threat they would create for themselves and others. This act was passed to prevent the experience that the council had been through and that a Blue Ribbon Committee looked at for six months. 
Is there any indication that this property was ever in front of the dunes? Was it, this that the dunes were ever eliminated entirely? Completely. It was, yeah. under, it was in the ocean in 1963. It was in the ocean 20% of the time since 1949. That is what exhibit number 22, which is in your appendix, shows. It shows you the shoreline fluctuations, which have been great and significant. Erosion is a problem along this beach. While it is generally accreting, there are severe episodes of erosion. Well, Mr. Harness, uh, with reference to the adjacent homes, the homes that have been built on adjacent property, I guess under your theory, South Carolina could require those homes to be removed because it still is the same threat to public safety that exists with respect to allowing new construction on, on these lots. Isn't, isn't that right? I suppose that Wouldn't your that theory take you that far? It would not take, my theory would not take me that far for two reasons, I think. First of all, or three reasons. First of all, it is typical of states to pass laws once they recognize there is a harm, to prevent new construction or new harm. No, I'm, I'm, I, I know that's typical. I'm saying, if I understand your theory, it would permit the state to require existing homes to be removed and no compensation paid. Again, wouldn't your theory go that far? No, I don't think it would for two, two no, reasons. Then what's the difference? For two reasons. I think that what you would have to look in at those, in the, under those circumstances in, would be the reasonable expectations of the property owners. And secondly... Well, excuse me, I don't understand before you go to secondly. Why, why, didn't this person have the same expectation when he bought the land? He didn't buy it to to look at the sand. He bought these, it to build a house. These people had already built... And he had already bought the property. The, these people had already built... He spent several million dollars, didn't he? Uh, over a million? What was the total price? A million. About a million dollars. Yeah. These people had already built under an older law. Yeah, and spend a million dollars. Probably not, yeah. yeah. And the law changed the state. There was nobody else who had houses. I would think his case is even better. He laid out a million dollars looking at these houses all up and down the street, and you don't think he had any expectation that he could build a house? If we allow economics to be the sole determinant of takings, then you will, in essence, eliminate the nuisance exception. Well, I'm sorry, I, I interrupted you on reason one. What's, what's number two? Re oh, reason one was economic expectation. In answer to Justice O'Connor's right. question. Excuse me. The second one is the uh, physical character of the land. It seems to me that what we're trying to do here is to prevent an ongoing and continuing damage to the environment. The houses that have, been, have, been, have already been built there will be removed over time, uh, and I think it is a wise decision on the part of the state because it would disrupt entirely the existing uses of property. Uh, and I think it is it, it could be is more it is more fair to prevent 
new construction and then remove these houses as they, as they are destroyed and let Well, the, let it the seems to me you're talking policy issues that could be addressed by a legislative body, but you're not addressing the limits of the Constitution at all by that response. And I think what we're interested in is what are the constitutional limits to state action? That's why we're here. Well, I, I think that the, the answer to that question, first of all, let me get some clarification. If you could ask the question again, I'm not certain that um, I have followed you completely. Well, I'm trying to have you describe for us what limitations there are under your view of what the Constitution requires with the takings clause. It would, nothing you have said gives me uh, any concept of where the line has to be drawn. Would you like to try to spell that out? At least as it relates to public health and safety. If there is a great threat to public health and safety, as there is, at least in the legislator's point of view in this case, I think that there is insulation given to the activity of the state. This court has said it depends upon the facts of each case. I'm not certain that I can stand here and tell you today where the limit can be drawn, but I think certainly well, in this instance... suppose the, the danger is to uh, the property owner himself or herself as to construction on a particular site, either because it's too steep and the house will slide away with the next rain, or because it's on an earthquake fault line, or because it's on a shoreline, not concerned with the neighbors or other people, just just with the safety of the people who would build on it. I think even in those circumstances, I think I would agree with the Solicitor General, that even in circumstances where there is construction upon unstable or very dangerous land, that even there, if it's for protection of that house and those people, that the state could uh, pass a law to prevent that such such construction, even though it may not have you the external effect. New construction. That's correct. Now, can you require the person living in an unsafe dwelling to totally remove it? It's not safe because the next rain's going to come, and your beautiful house on which you spent a million dollars is going to slide down the mountain. So we tell you to take it down now. There are compensation or no compensation. No compensation. It would be very similar to the tenement houses where the court has said you have to either remove these things or improve them. It makes it impossible for the landowner to do so because of the threat to the public. And let's say, for example, in your instance, the people rented the house out, didn't live it themselves. Certainly under those circumstances, the people in, that are in there are threatened uh, by the sheer construction or the mere construction upon an unsafe, unstable place. So I think the answer to that question is yes. How do you explain our uh, alternative statement in the Edgins case, in, in which we do, it seems to me, indicate that uh, there's a taking if the owner is denied all economically viable use of his land? That's the court's term, economically viable. Well, the court has never, in, to my knowledge, applied that test. It has repeatedly said that diminution in value alone is not sufficient to equate to a taking. But I think it, the way I have read it, it may be a shorthand for the fact that you have to look 
at two things, the diminution of value and also the reasonable investment-backed expectations. Um, I don't think it has been applied literally, and I have had the same problem uh, of determining what the word viable means. I assume that you would have to look to the character of the land as well to be certain it is of the type that would warrant construction. Uh, well, there, there's no doubt that there was an investment expectation here. Are you saying that it was unreasonable as a matter of law? Well, yes, but the court below was never asked to reach that point because it was never uh, an issue before them. They never had to get to it. Uh, but secondly, this Mr. Lucas, the petitioner here, was owner, participated in Wild Deuce from the very beginning of the construction, knew of the erosion events that occurred, significant erosion events all the way, th all the way through the 1980s, could or should have known the history of the property. Well, uh, he, had, had, he was on notice about the character of the land. Secondly, this beachfront along South Carolina is, has been highly regulated for some years. But is it, do you think, <clears throat> I didn't understand the South Carolina court to go on that basis, <clears throat> that he didn't have any uh, a valid expectation. The, the Supreme Court did not discuss that because it did not no, have to reach I, it. I, I, as it comes here, I think, uh, as the case comes here, you, I, th I thought the California court or the your, your state court said that, uh, uh, that even if there's a, a valid expe investment <coughs> expectation, even if uh, the law deprives uh, the landowner of all economic value, even if this law is valid and uh, no pay. That is not the way I read it. Uh, well, the way I understood the case was that, first of all, the petitioner raised a very extreme position that... Diminution alone was sufficient to equate to a taking. Second, that he conceded the purposes and findings. And as a result, the court did not have to go in and look at specifically the, uh, the, the um, harms above what the legislature had, had dictated because it was never questioned. It was never raised. And they were, they were addressing the very narrow theory that he presented to the court, which is diminution alone is sufficient to equate to a taking. Well, and am I right, at least to this extent, that... Uh if uh, uh, if the uh, that the that the uh, your state court's opinion would bar also any claim of a temporary taking. That's correct. Yes. As I, I South Carolina Supreme Court opinion analogizes to uh, to uh, a wetlands regulation, and they say just as uh, with respect to the seventy seven Coast Zone Management Act which prevented the uncontrolled use of coastal wetlands. Uh, and it says our analysis there did not contain a discussion of whether any economically viable use remained in the property. So also we don't have to have that discussion here. Now, I don't think wetlands regulation is something that I would call uh, uh, calling into question uh, high concerns of public safety. In Carter, the case they're referring to, it's Carter versus the South Carolina Coastal Council. The same type of questions that were raised here, that is, uh, diminution alone is sufficient uh, for taking, was also raised in that case. They did not have to look at the reasonable investment-backed expectations. But it was they did rely upon an old case of Just versus Marinette County that talks about uh, justified expectations in that there is no 
justified expectation on the part of any person to use property in a way that harms others and requires that you change the natural character of the area so as to make it economically or uh, make an economic use of it. So I think uh, the court implicitly talked about in Carter the reasonable investment-backed expectations, although it was not raised. I'm not talking about reasonable investment-backed expectations. I'm saying that the court here said we would be overruling Carter if we acknowledged that a total taking would require compensation. That's what they said. And I take that to mean, I take that to be the position that any valid regulation of the land, any valid regulation, regardless of whether it rises to the level of regulation in order to prevent a public nuisance, does not require compensation even if it requires, a, even if it results in a complete taking, a complete diminution of value. That is... Isn't that a fair characterization of the, of the opinion? No, sir. That has not been our position. It was not that position presented to the, to the court. And I think their position is better characterized as, as not having to reach that issue because of the narrow way in which the case was postured to them. Uh, they weren't required, they weren't, at no point in time were they asked to look at the harms. The state was not required to defend on that position. As a consequence, he made his bed and, and the court said, you sleep in it. You didn't I, challenge it and we don't have to get to it because you didn't ask us about it. I agree that they didn't have to get to it, but I, I'm not sure I agree that they didn't get to it. I do not see how the Carter case would have been overruled by acknowledgement that in, in at least uh, that, that a total taking requires compensation. I did not think that Carter rested upon uh, the importance of the uh, uh, of public interest in the wetlands. Carter rested upon the proposition, and the court talked about the difference between uh, eminent domain and taking in that case, rested on the proposition that you do not have a right to use your property in a way that harms others. So they dealt with the issue of whether or not there was public harm. And that is that the position you're defending? Any use of your property that harms others can be, be prohibited, even to the extent of depriving your, your land of all its value? without compensation. No, our position is not that. Our position is... Well, then again, I don't understand why Carter would have been overruled by acknowledging the claim here. In Carter, there was no, no, there was no question raised about the degree of harm. It simply said public harm. Okay? Our position has been throughout the course of this trial and before this court that there is a degree of public harm it warrants insulation. I don't know exactly where that line is, and certainly the court has had to do it on an ad hoc basis. As it, as it relates to the South Carolina Supreme Court, however, all they were faced with was not the, it was not the degree of harm. It was the fact that they conceded that there was harm, and secondly, they did not raise it in their very extreme position. One of the other points that I would like to make is, again, back to the degree of harm and, and to talk a bit about the purpose of the Act. The purpose of the Act was to 
prevent people from building on unstable or eroding beaches. And that was the purpose of the setback scheme. But we can't assume that that purpose applies in this case, can we? Because the, isn't the effect of the, uh, what was it, the 1990 amendments uh, indicates that that purpose is in fact not going to be realized in, in, every, uh, in every case, otherwise they wouldn't have made uh, provision for, uh, for exceptions. So we can't assume that that is necessarily a fact that applies to this case, can we? I think that you can. I don't think that the 1990 amendments detract from the fact that there is serious public harm created by building near the ocean. I think what the legislature did was to bring it down to the council level to see if in some rare and unusual circumstances the purposes and the ends or the, or the means are, could be considered and Sure, but the rare and unusual circumstances would be circumstances in which building on a given lot would not pose a threat of harm to the public. That's the circumstance, isn't it? And we have to assume that that is possible. That it is possible. It may be possible on this lot. It it may be possible from a cumulative sense. I don't think that the legislature uh, instructed the Coastal Council to go down and look at each, indiv- each individual lot, but to consider the well, cumulative... Well, issue, maybe, maybe I'm just playing with words here. Who issues the, uh, the permits in the, in the cases where, there, where an exception is made un- under the amendment? It would be issued by a 14-member commission. Okay, so it's the 14-member commission that can go up and down the coast if there's a request for a permit and decide whether in a given case uh, there would be harm to the public in building. That is correct. And that hasn't been done here, so we can't assume what the result would be. I don't think you can, go, you can at all assume what a 14-member council will do. Mr. Harness, you, yeah, and you say the claim is not right because application to that council hasn't been made. Um, why? why? I, I would agree with that if the South Carolina court had taken that position, but but in in um, don't don't we uh, uh, go along with uh, at least where we're in the area of prudential standing, where where the state courts have allowed the suit to proceed? Don't we take appeals from those state courts in in tax cases, for example? The federal rule is a taxpayer has no standing, but if a state wants to give a state taxpayer standing, we will review that case and we won't apply our prudential rule, will we? Uh, No, sir, but could I tell you why the South Carolina Supreme Court did what they did? Shortly after arguing the case, or after arguing the case, the uh, legislation was passed allowing for uh, what amounts to a variance. Uh, The counsel for the South Carolina Coastal Council uh, applied to the court seeking to uh, see if the 1990 amendments would have any effect on their decision. And the South Carolina Supreme Court said it is too late to make that request. We don't have any way under our current uh, rules to allow you to argue uh, after oral arguments have been made. So as the dissent said, uh, they, they would have preferred to send it back down to the Coastal Council to see what they, what they had gotten. Well, whatever the reason, they went ahead and they did not consider it unripe. Uh, ripeness is a, is, a, is a prudential doctrine. I don't know why it is prudent, not prudent for us, having a, a decision by the South Carolina Supreme Court in effect, to, uh, to say in this case we'll treat it the same way. Why, why don't we just do the same thing that they did? Let me say that, let me try to answer that question. And I'm not tempted to avoid, but it seems to me that what we're asking for, first of all, is that 
you uphold the South Carolina Coastal Council decision because, because of the narrowness of this argument. But if you're going to remand it, if you consider remand, I think it, that the remand should go to whether or not that they could rely upon the petitioner's concessions and whether they incorrectly relied upon the findings. It to me that you've, you've already conceded uh, that the opinion of the of your state court bars any claim of a temporary taken, even if the rest of the case is not right. And in which, in, in which event, then the legal issue about the correctness of the judgment of the state court is before us. And we have to, we can't say the temporary takings claim isn't ripe. Well, it seems to me that you can say that the temporary takings claim is not right because no evidence was presented below at all about well, I know, but that just assume. But let's just assume that the under the state court's opinion and judgment, there could be no temporary takings claim for the same reason that it decided there couldn't be any claim at all. So that I, I just. I don't know how you can say we can, uh, we, can, we can just completely remand the whole case. Well, it seems to me that the appropriate remedy, and I, I agree with the, with the Solicitor General, I think that the appropriate remedy is if you cannot uphold the South Carolina Coast, uh, a court, that you would remand to get to the other parts of the, other parts of the test, uh, since the only thing presented to the court below was the issue of whether economic, uh, loss of economic value alone was sufficient to equate to a taking. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Harness. Uh, Mr. Lewis, you have two minutes remaining. I will entertain any questions of the court. Apparently the court has no questions. The case is submitted. <laughs>